0: That sing and creates a tradition of singing. The messages we're done. <laughs> well, hello, church. Good morning. So my name is Catherine, and I am one of the members of the teaching team. There are five of us, and uh, we take turns. And uh, so that's good for you because if one of us isn't that hot uh, next week, it will probably be someone better. Um, So that's good. So today we're going to dive back into our Mark series, which we've been doing again recently, and I also wanted to give you the heads up that it's Communion Sunday, so following the message we will be having Communion, and at Liminal, everyone is invited, everyone is welcome to the table, and we'll go through how Communion works a little bit later. So I'm not very uh, good at coming up with titles for the. all the other teachers come up with these really good titles, but I stole a title. So this one, and I changed one word, is this message today is titled A Tale of Two Trials. And we only have, don't clap, please don't clap, we only have four more Sundays of Mark. Okay, no, who, who is that? <laughs> Cut that out. And uh, most recently, for the last couple of months, we've been going through the last week of the life of Jesus. And we're doing that because of the 16 chapters in Mark, six of them, almost half, I'm terrible with math, but almost half are devoted to the last week in the life of Jesus. And in these last chapters, Mark is bringing all of the themes together, all the themes that he's introduced all along the way. And so we see the following themes coming uh, together, that Jesus has authority. He walks into a scene, and he is the one with the authority. We see Jesus as the servant of the Lord, and we're going to see that today. And you'll just have to remember that I said that because I don't think I'm going to talk about that. We're going to see Jesus as the Son of God we're going to learn a little bit more about who or what is a disciple. We're going to see insiders and outsiders and how they respond to Jesus. We'll get a taste of this ongoing theme of the command to silence where Jesus does not want people to identify who he is along the way. And the theme of journey which is we've been watch, seen since day 1 of Mark where Jesus is on the way all over Jerusalem, up, down, Israel, in and out of Gentile and Jewish territory, and finally here the last week of his life. And then we're also seeing um, in Mark today uh, these uh, literary characteristics that Mark has, his style of writing. He's very brief. There's very few narrative details, and we would love to have more narrative details. Mark loves irony. In so many scenes, we see that Jesus' response to a situation or a person or the response of people to Jesus and what's happening is not what his readers would have expected. And, of course, the famous sandwich technique. Now, because I think this last week of his life is so compelling, we're going to have a map, I hope, if I did this right, and I apologize It's the best I could do, and you can see I stretched it in weird ways so the letters look odd. But the whole week, last week of Jesus' life, takes place in this space. So you see the Mount of Olives on the right. It's uh, a mountain is where God meets his people, and so on... Palm Sunday, Jesus left the Mount of Olives. He came down from the mountain, he crossed the valley, and he entered Jerusalem on a donkey to uh, crowds of cheering people, proclaiming him as the Messiah, welcoming him as, as Messiah. Probably that same day, Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea but did not live in Jerusalem because it wasn't as nice and gorgeous, and conveniently located as the city he lived in, which was Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean, so west of Jerusalem. Pilate lived in this brand-new, beautiful home in a city that was built by Herod the Great, the megalomaniac puppet ruler of Israel that everyone hated. That's where Pilate lived. But Pilate came into Jerusalem from the east, on a war horse with uh, hundreds of heavily armed Roman soldiers. And this was a show of force to effectively deal with any unrest or rebellion that was likely to occur at the Passover. Because Passover was like gasoline uh, to an always ready-to-explode Jewish rebellion. Because during Passover, the city was filled with at least a million, and some scholars think two million by the way, that's a really tiny city, so they couldn't all two million people couldn't be in it. But there were a lot of people in the city, and they were observant Jews who had traveled from all over to celebrate the Passover. And why was Passover such a difficult holiday for Rome to keep the lid on? Because it was, they were the holy days commemorating God's deliverance of his people from a hated, oppressive empire. So if Jesus rode in on a Sunday, Saturday, hold on, I can do this. <laughs> Apparently, I'm as calendar-challenged as I am math-challenged. If Jesus rode in on a Sunday, then on Monday was the day that he went to visit the temple. So you can see the temple is that square in the, to the right. If you were to walk around the walls of the temple, it would be a, 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 around a mile. The temple's huge, huge. The temple... Of course, the temple itself is just inside. I'm blathering. i got to stop. Okay. When Jesus entered the temple, what he saw angered him because during Passover, the hypocrisy of the temple system was on full display. Those who had traveled to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover wanted to make a sacrifice, and they needed um, an animal to sacrifice, which was for sale at the temple. But they couldn't use... The Roman currency to buy the animal. Their currency had to be converted to special temple currency. And they couldn't use the Roman currency because it had a picture of Caesar on it. Caesar was worshipped as a god. So there were no other gods were allowed in the temple. So they had to exchange their Roman coins for temple currency, and they were most likely charged a fee to do so. And this was all happening in the court of the Gentiles, where the tables were filled with the money. The tables of the money changers were there, and there were probably animals for sale for sacrifice. And because the entire court of the Gentiles was filled with this Passover activity, it was impossible for Gentiles to enter the one space that was open to them. And this infuriated Jesus, and he overthrew the temples, and in fact and overthrew the tables. And in fact, he... Um, On the way in and the way out, he enacted a parable, which was a judgment on the temple system when he cursed the fig tree. I know this is too much background information, but I'll get to to it, I promise. Over the next few days, so Monday and Tuesday, Jesus spent time teaching in and around the temple area. And in Mark, he describes how the religious and political elites kept devising tests to trick Jesus into saying or doing something that would either get him in trouble with Rome or, even better, cause the Jewish people to reject Jesus or to get Jesus to do or say something that would allow the Jewish authorities to arrest him. But Jesus outwitted them all. But Jesus does take the occasion to allow this majesty of the temple to uh, warn the disciples that Jerusalem is in real trouble and that a day will come when all will need to run for their lives and that the temple will be destroyed entirely. And in doing this warning, he connects something that's going to happen in in the near future, which is the destruction of the city and the temple, to events that all believers will undergo uh, later on that everyone at times in their lives of faith will have difficulty and suffering and distress. And he wants his followers to know and us to know that faith requires that we show up every day with courage and compassion and stamina. Then most likely on Wednesday of the week, Jesus was in Bethany, which is a little town, a day's walk uh, to the east, And he's having dinner in Bethany. And during the dinner, an unnamed woman in Mark's gospel anoints him with fragrant and very expensive oil. And when her actions are condemned by the guests, guests, Jesus defends her. He says, she is the one who will be spoken of whenever the gospel is preached, suggesting that she alone has taken to heart what Jesus has been telling everyone, that he's come here to die. She is the only one with the faith and the foresight to prepare him for his death. Now, I want to give a shout-out to Mark right now for his treatment of women in the gospel. He shows the majority of the women in his gospel in a very positive light as ideals of faith and devotion. So some of these things I'm going to talk about you heard more than a year ago when we started the Mark series but perhaps you remember the woman with the hemorrhage who touches his robe, and she, she is portrayed as a, someone uh, who is a model of faith for the more important man in the story, the named man, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, who's concerned about the health of his daughter. You may remember that an outsider woman, a Syrophoenician, was a model of faith for all outsiders when she uh, argued effectively with Jesus discussed theology with him the widow in the temple was a model of an exemplar or an exemplar of giving because she gave of all she had and Jesus tells us that this woman who anoints him in this story is so exemplary that the proclamation of the gospel for the rest of the world for years to come will remember her so after the dinner at bethany the next day is passover And Mark describes the Passover dinner that he had with his disciples. The dinner we call the Last Supper. In fact, the communion, the dinner that we are going to commemorate in communion this Sunday. And during this last meal, Jesus says and does things to prepare his disciples again for his impending death. And he tells them at this meal that one of them will betray him. And he warns them that not all will have the courage or stamina to stick it out when the authorities come for them. He tells them they will all fall away. Now, Peter is confident that he will never leave Jesus, and he tells this to Jesus. And he even tells Jesus, if it's necessary, I will die for you. And this is when Jesus tells Peter that this very night, Peter will do, deny him three times before the rooster crows twice, and then the disciples leave the meal, the Last Supper. And actually, you can see it right there. Okay, do you see the little spot that says Essene Quarter? It's on the lower left. It says the Last Supper, and there's a room that points to upper, upper room, an arrow. So that's where they had the Last Supper. And now our verses today are going to take place right next door. At the high priest's house, Caiaphas's house. So, anyway, at the garden, they all fall asleep, even though they've been told to stay, keep watch, and pray. And uh, they fall asleep three times. And when Judas and the crowd arrived, Jesus is arrested, and the disciples run away. And that scene foreshadows our verses today. So, I'm finally getting to today. All right, here we go. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, And he broke down and wept. It's such a poignant scene. And it is another Markin sandwich. The top piece of bread... So, not all of you have been with us the whole 20 years we've been doing the Marks gospel. (laughs) A Markin sandwich is this literary device that Mark uses where he starts a story... And then in the middle of the story, he inserts another story or another scene. And when that scene's complete, he goes back to the second story. So our commentator called them Markin' Sandwiches, and we're a hungry bunch. We liked it, so we stuck with it. This Markin' Sandwich is a little bit different because the top piece of bread is very thin. It's practically an open-faced sandwich. It is <laughs> just one sentence. Peter follows him into the courtyard. Then we have that very, uh, we have that trial with the Sanhedrin. And then we go back to Peter in the courtyard. Now, it's a super vivid and memorable scene, but I want to show you a couple things that might help make it more memorable. So, I hope I have some pictures. Okay, so this is one side of Jerusalem. You see the tall wall in the back with the tower in the middle? That's the temple. Who's been to Jerusalem? Anybody? Okay, I never have. I'm really jealous. So this is, apparently there is a scale model of the old city where it's, here's math again, uh, 1 to 50 ratio. I don't know what that means. But <laughs> it, you can walk around it and there, it's to scale. That's all I know. This So that's the temple on the back. Oh, come back, come back. There we go. This in the front here, this is the original wall. The city's bigger than this now. Or after Jesus' death, the city... Never mind. I'm not going to talk about things I don't know anything about. Okay. That is Herod's palace right there. Okay? So very close to the temple. Uh, there's a, there's the... Um, when Brian talked about uh, the money changers, when he did that thing, he saw, said how there was a garrison right by the temple. That tower, those flat towers, that apparently is a garrison where Roman soldiers were. So everybody's... They're always there. Okay, next slide. I think I'm ready. I think I can do this. Okay, so this is a reproduction of the House of Caiaphas. Anybody been to the Getty Villa in Malibu? Okay, it, this is the Getty Villa on steroids, all right? <laughs> uh, it has these three entrances. It makes you think it's probably a family compound, a huge extended family of Caiaphas live there. And when uh, they talk about the courtyard that Peter was in with the f- servant girl in the fire, it was probably one of those two back ones on the right or the left. These front ones are uh, more of a uh, welcoming, that would be the entrance, and those round circles are wells. Uh, apparently all of Jerusalem is built on a rock, and so they have to dig down, and those were cisterns below his house, and so fresh water was always available in Caiaphas' house. And strangely, so were holding cells for prisoners. Isn't that a strange thing? But apparently when Jesus was uh, spent the night in Caiaphas' house, he was down in the dungeon in these holding cells created for prisoners. So Herod's castle, palace, whatever grounds, is just straight north. And it would probably take Caiaphas like a minute and a half to walk there. Along this side are more houses like Caiaphas's. His was the biggest. But there are more houses like this where all the very wealthy, elite uh, Sanhedrin Jews, uh, teachers, they all lived. They had their own like Beverly Hills area of Jerusalem. And um, they had their own private road to the temple so that nobody and no thing would make them unclean as they walked their own route to the temple. Okay, this is, so this is where he is. He's in this house. Oh, there's one more shot of the interior. This is a reproduction. But you can see that the wealthy elites lived just like the wealthy Romans, very much unlike the disciples and the people that Jesus was hanging around with. Okay. From today's verses, we learn that Peter, although initially fleeing when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, does figure out that Jesus was being taken to the house of the high priest. And as the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law began to make their way into the courtyard, Peter snuck in with them as part of the crowd. And Mark points out that although Peter, unlike the other disciples, is actually following Jesus, he does so at a distance. And perhaps that's a clue to Peter's uh, mental and emotional state. He's not sure, but he is there. And according to Mark's gospel, the other disciples are not. Now Mark tells us that the reason that Jesus was brought to the house of Caiaphas was that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death. Now, if we were Jews living in Jerusalem at this time, we would go, wait a minute, that's not how it works. Yes, the Sanhedrin does conduct religious trials, but not in someone's home. They have a court in the temple for this, and they do. In that giant temple, there was a room built the court of the Sanhedrin that could hold all 71 of them. And if we were Jews living in Jerusalem at this time, we would go, and the Sanhedrin can only hear cases during the day, not at night. Furthermore, to get a guilty verdict, the trial has to go to at least a second day, again, a day, and not the night. So, knowing this is how the Sanhedrin is supposed to operate, what might we concur about this group? Well, it's clearly a portion, maybe, of the Sanhedrin meeting in secret at night, conducting a trial in a private home in order to get the result they want, the death of Jesus which Mark told us they have wanted to do since chapter 3. But they're still trying to follow at least a part of the rules. They need evidence. They would prefer evidence of blasphemy, which is punishable by death, and even scholars disagree on that. Could the Sanhedrin put someone to death even for blasphemy? They need specific testimony, And they need two plausible witnesses to give this specific testimony, and their stories have to match. And in this section of Mark, in these few verses, Mark is using one word over and over and over again, and the word is martyria. There's the Greek. Martyria means testimony, uh, evidence, a good reputation, a witness. It's where we get our word "martyr." Because the early Christians were witnesses, they were so good at it, they got put to death. Mark uses another word, another version of that word, pseudo martyria, fake witness, to, give, uh, to perjure, to lie. These um, words are used seven times in just ten verses, and it's a clue to us what the meaning of this particular part of the Mark and Sandwich is all about which I hope I will make clear by the end of this message. So the high priest needs evidence, but he isn't getting what he needs. No two people in the room can get their evidence to agree. And finally, some manage to say, hey, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Which is not something Jesus ever says in Mark, but in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, so the witnesses are twisting something that they've heard Jesus say, and what these witnesses say sounds just credible enough to the uh, chief priest that he turns to Jesus, who has been silent this entire time. And says, "Aren't you going to answer this charge? Aren't you even going to try to explain what you've been quoted as saying?" But Jesus remains silent and says nothing, which prompts the high priest to say something. And now here, Mark does something lesson, something amazing. But to understand it, we're going to get a lesson in Koine Greek. So we're, this is just a facsimile of Mark's gospel. Um, Koina Greek is what he wrote in. It's uh, what everyday people spoke. It wasn't any highfalutin special language. It was just the everyday language. It would be like, you know, uh, if we sat down and wrote a story. It sounded like that. Do you notice anything about this? Compared to, like, just imagine opening a page of a book right now in English. Lisa? No There's no punctuation. What else do you notice? No There's no space between words. No punctuation, no space between words, and everything is all capital letters. Okay? So, there isn't any question, Mark, when the high priest asks his question. It's actually... A statement, you are, the, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. The only way a translator would know it's a question is, next slide. Okay, so that's what the, Mark has put the words into the high priest's mouth. You are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. The only way you would know, I think I messed up my slides. What's the next slide? Oh, and, okay, we better go back. (laughs) The only way you know when you're translating Greek, ancient Greek, is that the verb lets you know if it's a question. He said, or he inquired, he interrogated. But that would be the only way you know. So Mark has done this very clever thing of making the enemy of Jesus say the truth about Jesus. Um. And so the one true thing that has been said in this trial so far comes out of the mouth of the high priest. And for the first time in this trial, Jesus speaks. The truth has been spoken, and so Jesus responds to the truth. And so Jesus says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. And when he says this, the high priest becomes unglued because Jesus has just claimed to have the majesty and authority of God. He says those words, I am. And he uses these visual words, clouds and sitting at the right hand. And these are scenes from the Hebrew scriptures, from Daniel and from the Psalms. And when Jesus does this, the high priest rightly hears that Jesus is both claiming and affirming his his divine sonship before the high priest and before the entire Sanhedrin and portraying himself as the one who is fulfilling the role and the mission of the Son of Man described in the Hebrew Scriptures. The commentator, James Edwards, says this, Mark's trial scene is profoundly ironic. The Sanhedrin stands on the law and Jesus sits in the dock but in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law, and Jesus upholds it. Because the testimony that the Sanhedrin seeks against Jesus is not in the end provided by false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in the claim to be God's son. The words from his own mouth seal his fate. And after this, uh, scholars believe that Jesus was taken down below Caiaphas' house into the holding cells, and held there until daylight the next day when he could appear before Pilate. And then Mark returns to the close of the sandwich, Peter in the courtyard. In the Getty Villa, you know, they had a beautiful outdoor courtyard with gardens and a waterfall, that's what the, this courtyard would have looked like. While there's a trial going on upstairs, there's a trial of another sort happening downstairs. Peter is trying to remain inconspicuous as he sits among the guards, keeping warm by the fire. A servant girl sees his face illuminated by the fire. You were with that Nazarene, Jesus. Peter says, I don't know or understand what you are talking about. But he leaves the courtyard and goes out to the entrance. She sees him there again when she's doing her rounds, and she tells the people who are standing around, hey, this guy is one of them. Peter denies it. But it's got the people around him wondering. And one of them says to Peter, Clearly, you're one of them. We can tell by your clothes and by your voice that you're from Galilee. Peter swears he is not. I don't know how he cursed himself. It may be something like, May my right hand be cut off if I'm lying. I don't know this man you are talking about. Imagine... Peter, who just a few hours ago had said, if everyone leaves you, I will stay. Who just a few hours ago had said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. The same Peter says, I don't know this man you are talking about. And the rooster crows a second time, and Peter remembers what he heard from the mouth of Jesus just a few hours ago. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter, remembering this, falls apart, weeping. A poignant scene, a powerful scene. Because Mark is comparing the bold and revealing words, the testimony of Jesus before the high priest, to the fearful and denying words, the testimony of Peter before the servant girl. And in fact, this entire last week of the life of Jesus, Mark and the other gospel writers have taken great pains to show us how very undisciplely the disciples are. This is a composite of the four Gospels, but at the Last Supper, when Jesus tells them when one of them will betray him, they wonder about it for a bit, and then they start arguing about which one of them is the greatest. When Jesus needs their support at the Garden of Gethsemane, they fall asleep. Peter denies him during the trial, and all but one of them abandons him as he dies at the cross. Weak, foolish, clueless, Self interested disciples. Clearly, they lack courage and commitment and comprehension and conviction. They mess up, drop the ball, and miss the point over and over again. And actually, that sounds a lot like me on most days. <laughs> Perhaps we can all recognize ourselves in the disciples. We recognize our own weakness foolishness and failures and perhaps like Peter our desire is to be faithful to Jesus but like Peter we don't actually know what that means or what that entails Mark might be reminding his listeners and us today that in everything we do we are witnesses we are evidence of who Jesus is in our lives And Mark is reminding his listeners then and us now that Jesus knows just how fallible we are at that. And in an upside-down, backwards, this does not make any kind of sense way, this is actually good news. Because none of our fears, our foolishness, our fallibility, our failures negate God's grace and love or stop God from empowering us to be witnesses, to be evidence of the kingdom, evidence of his love in the world. And one of the ways we know this is to keep looking at Peter. The rest of Peter's life is evidence that it doesn't matter what we've done. Peter, in the rest of the... in the Gospels and in Acts and uh, the letters, he constantly had to rethink his understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in his time and place. He faithfully negotiated the really difficult theological crises that were facing the early church. He was jailed by the Romans more than once. And ultimately, he was able to make true his claim, I am willing to die for you, Jesus, because Peter was crucified by the Roman Empire. Mark did not need to spill this, spell this out for his audience. His audience knew Peter. They knew the story. They knew that Peter knew that he was loved by his Lord and Savior. There are so many things layered into these verses today, but what I want you to hear today, what I want you to focus on, is this. In God's eyes, we are not defined by the worst we are capable of. And we are capable of a lot. Instead, we are always deeply loved by the Holy One, the God who is loved. We are beloved forever. And accepting that love and living into that love redeems and transforms our failures into a seed that grows us into the image of God, like Peter. We're going to commemorate everything about this last night in Jesus' life in just a few minutes when we take communion. So I'd like to invite the band and the ushers up. And there's a slide on the screen, I think, that's going to explain the mechanics of how communion works, but I'll just go over it. The band will play a worship song. The ushers will be here. Uh, when you come up to take communion, just come up the middle, uh, grab a cup and a cracker. The usher will feed, uh, fill the juice. If I didn't say it already, you'll come up when you're ready to come up. If you find it difficult to walk up or there's chairs in the way, I'm going to be in the back. Raise your hand. I'll bring communion to you. If one line is long and another line is short, go to the shorter line. This communion, perhaps we can acknowledge or lament that like Peter, we are not the person we aspire to be. But this communion, may we also know we are loved by the creator of the universe. May we be assured of God's forever love, confident of Jesus' transforming love, and open to the call of the Spirit in every aspect of our lives. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, know that God is Here. It is God who feeds us, renewing his promises, renewing his covenant to be with us and for us always.